You're listening to the Jubilee Montreal podcast. Jubilee Montreal is a Christian church located in downtown Montreal that exists to share the good news as a spiritual family for holistic transformation. For more information on Jubilee Montreal, visit us online at www.jblmontreal.org. Today's going to be, I'm going to say it's going to be a little different, but it might not seem different to you at all, so we'll see how it goes. Um, Next week, I don't have a slide for it, but next week, as Elena said, is the launch. And so um, I'll say something else about that. But on the launch, the sermon part of the launch will also be the first message in a new uh, series. And so, again, I don't have it, but it's the, the series is called The Quiet Revolution of Love. It's the name of the launch as well. And so A Quiet Revolution of Love, it will be every week um, through the fall till Christmas or till just before Christmas, actually. And we're going to be looking at Jesus' teaching and words from the Gospels, and we're going to be asking, a quest, asking questions such as, what is, what is he really teaching? And is what Jesus is teaching, is that the Christianity we've experienced? And is that what we presently experience? And it's always a little different. Jesus is, we have not arrived yet, and what Jesus is teaching is a bit different, I think, than what most of us experience. And also for those, and this is why it is relevant uh, for people who are not Christians, what is Jesus really about? If we just look at what he says, we don't look at anything else. What is he about? What is he trying to get across? And is that the Christianity that we think we've already rejected, or is it not? It should be look again, at least, consider it again. And so it's called The Quiet Revolution of Love. Uh, and if, if you know anything about the history of Quebec, it's just a little nod to the past and the, the move away in Quebec, the rapid move away from uh, overt religious faith and mostly Catholicism, but religious faith in general, secularization. And uh, so we just want to say it's, it's amazing, because if you think about the room we're in right now, I mean, it existed during those days and before those days. This is a convent. Um, and this room itself, although it's a classroom now, if we were to move all this stuff, there's, there's still a cross on the wall. Things like that. And just to think about the history of this place and what we'll be talking about is trying to dig through all the religious stuff and trying to get at what is Jesus teaching. Because he upset religious people. So obviously it's not doing the same thing that it's been received as or been presented as in the past, especially in this province. And so we see it as good news. Uh, I know just for me living here for the past years, I don't, I don't see Quebec as a godless place. I see it as a beautiful opportunity. Because in many other places in North America, Christianity is... It's tired, and people are generally tired of the religious, the religiosity of the Christianity that they've experienced, and so they just don't. They think they already know, and they don't really want anything to do with it. The beautiful thing about Quebec is now, with this many years past, what's called the Quiet Revolution. I think there's an openness, there's a blank slate in a way, to say let's let's try to discover again what it is that Jesus is talking about. Since we already figured out what it's not, let's try to figure out what it is. It's not control. It's not oppression. It's not hate. So what is it? And so that's what we'll be talking about. It'll start, it'll start at the launch, and it'll go after. I also want to say about the launch, too, that although, uh, you know, if you've been around, if you've been around a year ago, almost, almost exactly a year ago, a little bit more, I think, Angelica and I sat up in front of everybody a few blocks away at Innovation Youth. And after a year before that, really, of transition, we felt really strongly that it was time to make big changes into what we presented as replant or relaunch the church. And so that started a year ago. 
and we find ourselves here, and we, we talked about it in terms of our next page. We talked about, you heard Elena say that we've existed in different forms for about 10 years. And we talked about how it's been a, there's a story that God's been writing, and it's just time to turn the page to something new. Not to do away with everything and who we are, because the DNA of what we're doing here that was born in a living room is still very much present. But to turn the page to something else. And so that page turn has taken a year. And uh, it both feels like five years, though, to me. So when I say a year, it doesn't feel like that big a deal. But what the launch is for us next week is it's the completion of the page turn. That's all it is. And then the story continues after that. So although we've been talking a lot about the launch and, and people will be coming to the launch and we'll be celebrating together, the launch is really not the point. right? It's just one day. It's going to be a good day and a celebration. But it's a celebration of what God's doing and then what he will continue to do. So just to say, try to be there, invite friends, but also see in perspective. We've never been all about the Sunday morning and we will continue not to be all about it. Right? I think we, we believe strongly that God is active in our community as a movement every day, all day, everywhere. And this is just a plus. So today, what I want to talk about is Jubilee. Why do we call ourselves Jubilee? What does that mean? And I want to talk about it specifically in terms of this idea of coming home in this picture. And the reason I say it's going to be a little different today is because we've been going through Romans 8, kind of line by line, when we go through the quiet revolution of love, we'll be talking about a teaching of Jesus or a parable in itself each time. Today, I'm going to scan through a lot of scripture. We're not going to go very deep into any of it, and I'm going to try to just share with you a heart and a story and, a, and a kind of a weaving of a message throughout scripture of kind of what is on our heart and what I believe is in the heart of God, why we call ourselves Jubilee, what we're about, what is our vision, and what's an invitation to us. And so if you want, if you, if you, I have the scripture up on the screen, but if you want to look, around on your, look along on your phone or Bible, we're going to look at Leviticus 25 first. Exciting Leviticus chapter 25. Just because everybody feels a bit sleepy, I thought we'd start in Leviticus. <laughs> um, you know, I actually feel like I want to pray again, so if you're all right with that. Father, I just want to thank you. God, I just sense that you want to share with us what's on your heart. Not what I'm saying today, and this is the hard thing, Father. Because I feel like what we're talking about today is not something to teach. It's, not, it's something that we might be able to, to get with our heads when we walk out, but it's really something we catch. And so, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would come and you would speak to our hearts. You would speak to my heart. That my words wouldn't come from my mind that you would speak to us. That when we leave, we might not be able to communicate exactly today as we talk about this specific issue, exactly intellectually explain, although I hope that happens. But Father, we will be able to feel what it is that's on your heart and catch a bit about of the DNA of what the kingdom is, of what Christianity really is. So would you speak to us, Father? In your name I pray, Jesus. Amen. Well, if we talk about our vision, you can leave Leviticus if you have opened it. You can leave it there. When we talk about our vision, the, the easiest way to talk about it, the first way, is to just look at our name. Jubilee, and I'll talk a lot about Jubilee, but Jubilee means, if you want to just kind of whittle it down to whatever, to the most simplest thing, Jubilee is an announcement that our world today will be made right, can be made right. Your life today can be made whole, can be made new. Jubilee is an announcement of a new thing coming, okay? Of something corrected, healed, you know, made right, made whole. There's lots of ways we'll talk about it. So when we, when we call ourselves Jubilee Montreal, 
What we're saying is that we want and we pray, we want to see, we long for Jubilee to come to Montreal. For Montreal present to experience Jubilee. To come Jubilee is also a metaphor for the gospel, for good news, for the kingdom of God, for all of these things. Another way that we talk about it is this statement that you see written around that next week we'll have some new signs and stuff, so you'll see it bigger. But the, 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 the statement, we exist, we, are, we exist to share the good news as a spiritual family for holistic transformation. When we try to whittle down Jubilee to what does that mean every day, we make it a bit more specific, though still general. Every day we want to share the good news. We want to do it as a spiritual family. We want to do it for a purpose for holistic transformation. What is holistic transformation? This is kind of the goal of today, although I might not say that word a lot, is what I'm talking about today is how we get holistic transformation. Holistic transformation means that I'm changed on the inside. Me being changed on the inside will lead to change on the outside. Okay? God wants to change everything. He wants to make everything new. There is no dichotomy between God caring about us spiritually and caring about the world practically. So you heard Elena talk about something to do with social justice. We, we see no dichotomy between these things. There is nothing important, more important. It's all God's world. God cares about it all. God made people as physical beings, so he cares about them physically too. We became alienated from God spiritually, so he cares about us becoming in relationship with him spiritually again. Holistic transformation. What it would look like for me, if you want to get practical, for me to experience holistic transformation means that I come to experience a vulnerable, loving relationship with God that begins to transform my life from the inside. Nothing to do with my behavior. It, my behavior might still make people uncomfortable. That's not important to us at first. What it, what's important is that I begin to be transformed on the inside, and then my life, like a, like a well, you'll hear, I'm not going to quote scriptures, but you might hear them, like a well on the inside of me will begin to overflow, and people will be able to drink from it. And this is how other people get transformed. And then in the midst of that, because it's the DNA of the kingdom is inside me, I don't have dichotomies between do I care about the person spiritually or do I care about them practically. I have no dichotomies. I have the heart of God, so I want to make the whole world new. I, don't, I, I see the person for all that they are, the whole person. And in fact, and this is kind of what we'll go on to talk about, I'm more and more convinced that I am automatically led to other people. I am not trying to do anything. I am not trying to love my neighbor as myself. I am loved by God. And as I experience that on the inside, automatically, I don't have to make myself do it. I can wait until it happens. I will love God, and then I will love my neighbor as myself. And then we start getting holistic transformation. And when that spreads, when it just starts spreading to people, that's so why it's all about the inside. When it starts spreading to other people, it starts spreading out, spreading out. This is when you get ideas like making disciples and multiplication. And then it starts happening. And then you get transformation. And the beautiful thing is, then there's no way that you can talk about that it was you, something you did. Because your experience of, of transformation, what we'll continue to talk about, your experience is an inner experience. I'm not trying to change myself. My experience of God is beginning to change me so that life takes on a very different feeling. I mean, it's very hard to explain what I'm explaining today, so I'm just going to keep talking about it like this, even through the scriptures. A well begins to well up inside of you, and people automatically come to you. Think about Jesus. Think about what Jesus was doing. Jesus didn't look like he worked very hard to do something. He just kind of did things. You know? He showed up. He said the thing that he heard the Father saying. He said it. 
Sometimes he got annoyed with people. Sometimes he was frustrated with them. People were hungry and came to him to talk to him, to hear from him. The beautiful, radical thing that seems too good to be true is that it seems pretty clear scripturally that, and we won't, we won't talk too much about this right now, so I'll show you next time. The Father seems to want us to become like Jesus. It seems to be his plan. Not that we work to become like him, but automatically that we will be transformed into his image. And so we should begin to experience life in a way as Jesus experienced it. So that's holistic transformation. Jubilee, chapter 25. You know what? I'm going to break my own rule and just turn around and look at the screen. Leviticus, chapter 25. This is the first time that we get the word jubilee, the idea of jubilee in the Bible. Count off seven Sabbath years, seven times seven years, so that the seven Sabbath years, this would be good for a spoken word, amount to a period of 49 years. Then have the trumpet sounded everywhere on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, sound the trumpet throughout your land. Consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you is to return to your family property and to your own clan. The 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. Do not sow and do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the untended vines. For it is a jubilee and is to be holy for you. Eat only what is taken directly from the fields. In this year of jubilee, everyone is to return to their own property. So the book of Leviticus is full of laws and strong suggestions about how, how you should live in such a way that you can connect with God and with one another. How you can live the good life as we've been talking about. This is Leviticus' way of talking about it. If you want to live the good life, do these things. Obey these things. Listen to these things, and it will go well for you. And that was for a purpose. It's not just bad. Leviticus was for a purpose, and these laws were for a purpose because it was trying to save a relationship with God that had been broken beyond repair. And so Leviticus is actually really good news in that sense because what should have been complete alienation, no relationship with God, turned into, okay, there's a way we can, God said there's a way we can manage this. If you do these things, I can, I can retain a sort of relationship with you. You've got to read Leviticus, though, this passage, as, as, and this is a, a fine line. Not just don't read the Bible as a kind of a story and a law telling us what to do. But try to read it, try to hear it today as coming from the heart of God. God had an idea. Okay? He had a dream and an idea. And so he came to them and he said, I want you to do this thing. I want you to count these years off, and I want you, at the, end of, at the end of this 49, 50-year period, I want you to proclaim this thing called Jubilee. I want you to sound it out and tell everyone. And the, the verses keep going, and kind of in summary, what the Jubilee would do is for all the Israelites, it would be a kind of year of, of equalizing, okay? So... Those that were Israelite slaves owned by other Israelites or in, in, uh, indentured to them, they would have to be released. Okay? It's a very political passage. It at first feels unspiritual, completely unspiritual. It's all practical. It's about the economy. Release them and let them go back. Either they have, even if they still owe you something, it doesn't matter. At this point, they're done. And whatever you've collected is fine, and they go back to their house. There's also this kind of too good to be true. Stop working. Do not sow. Do not, do not reap. Do not work. And there's this assumption that you will still eat. Okay? So God has this dream. I want you to make the world right, or at least Israelite society. I want you to make it right every 50 years. And I want, and this is kind of too hard for some of us to get maybe, God wants the world to look like that. He wants there to be some level of equality. 
right? It seems completely unfair. When you get really down into it, and we won't go too far right now, it, it means this. If, if I, you know, it's, it's the year after the Jubilee, so it kind of starts over, and I'm a businessman, and I start buying up land, you know, and Whitney has a bunch of land, but she needs some money, so she sells me her land. I take her land. This is the way it would work. And my land continues to grow, grow and grow and grow. The land is her family's land in the Israelite records, would still be in the records. And to God, it's always her land. And so in the next Jubilee, what is to happen, whether I like it or not, is I must give the land I've acquired back to Whitney. And Whitney, for whatever reason, even if she has wasted her money because she's addicted to drugs, she still gets her land back. It doesn't matter the mistakes she's made. She had land. I bought bought it from her fairly, but at the end of these six years, I must give it back. God wants a sort of equalizing to happen. When we... Jubilee is talked about many ways, but I want to talk about it today in terms of this verse 13. In this year of Jubilee, everyone is to return to their own property. This image of returning home is, is in a way at the heart of the idea of Jubilee. And at first, it just seems kind of like uh, a, t- a technicality. And but when we begin to think about the Bible and the story of the Bible, you can see the heart of God dreaming something up. He, of course, wants there to be some kind of economic compassion for people. But if we begin to think back to Genesis, Genesis, the story of Genesis in chapters 1, 2, and 3 is the root of everything in the Bible, but it's the, it's the root of Leviticus. If you think about what Leviticus, the laws, what I was saying, are born out of, is they're born out of trying to, trying to manage and construct a relationship with God. We still live like this. Okay? We might not know the laws that we live by, but we live... We live to God, with God often with a, with a management system of rules. We might not be able to name them, but I think if you sat down and talked to somebody long enough, or if you had a psychiatrist talk to you, they might be able to begin to point out the ways that you live, the coping mechanisms you have, the deep things you believe that you think if you do them, you'll have to do something else in order to get back to God or have them speak to you. We still live like that. Genesis chapter 3, the end. As I said, I'm just going to keep going through this. I always lose this thing. There it is. Genesis chapter 3. What's happened in Genesis, if you know the story, is that God has created Adam and Eve as the first peoples. They're in the garden living life with God. They're working with him. He's, he's given them authority on the earth over creation, over uh, all that's in the garden. To make the long story short, um, they encounter what the scriptures call an enemy in the form of a serpent who then entices them with a decision. Do they want to trust God or do they not? Do they want to become like God that is pride in the end if you look at the story? Or do they want to trust God as a child? And so they, 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 they follow along, they accept his offer, they both eat, and then they experience what the Bible first then calls sin a broken world, a world of alienation. They immediately are against each other. It's not all about God. They, of course, are scared of God. They feel intense shame. They don't want to be with each other. All of a sudden, something is gone now. Something is missing. So at the end of chapter 3, there's this kind of sad last part of the story. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And he drove the man out. He placed on the east side of the garden 
of Eden, cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. We'll, we'll talk more at length sometime about what's, what's going on here and why is it so bad that they've eaten the, from this tree and that they know the difference between good and evil. But it's also, it, it has to do with the fact that God never meant us to live in a place where we relate to the world or to God, and this is hard to get, but between right and wrong. It is especially hard for Christians, I think. God never meant for us to live our lives out of what is right and what is wrong. And immediately when I say that, I think there's something that you feel that says, well, I mean, who's to say then we just live however we want? That's what they ask Paul often. But the point is, before this, before they ate the tree, they weren't doing what you know of as wrong. But they didn't know the difference. They weren't living their lives trying to do what is right, judging right and wrong and doing it. Because when humans do that, the world goes bad anyway. And we can't relate to God like that. He doesn't want us to relate to him based on doing things or not doing things. It's almost too good to be true. But what he wanted them to relate to them as is a father who made them and created them and loved them and just to live in relationship with him. And so because they couldn't do that, they didn't want to do that, he sends them out of the garden. And so the beginning of the story of the Bible is leaving a home. Adam and Eve become like refugees, although it's, in many ways it's their fault. But they are, they are victims to something in the same way. They become refugees, they have to leave. And from that point on, it's not on the screen, but it's very interesting when you just turn the page and you read chapter 4, verse 1. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. What happens is the story, immediately, what they, want, what they want you to know is in the story, the minute they leave home, that they're, they're cast out, they're wandering, they're away from their father, they're away from where they come from, their homeland, they're, they're cast out, immediately they have a child. And, the, and what I think that means is that the, the birth of the human race, and from here on, it's, you know, the stories continue and people have babies and more babies and more babies. And every child is born outside of home. The story of scripture begins, although you can easily pass over it, with Adam and Eve were made for that place. Not just a physical place, okay? So hear what I'm saying. I'm going to keep talking about place and coming home, but I'm not talking about a physical place necessarily. They were home. They were forced to leave, and every child that has been born has been born outside of home. They have, nobody is born in home. Nobody is born with a father. This is how the theologians or the scriptures talk about how we're all born uh, in sin or dead. It's another way to talk about it, is we're all born outside of where we're supposed to be, outside of where we were created to be. Our DNA is created for a certain place, and we're not there. And so Jubilee, just, just keep Jubilee in mind then. God's great dream and call is that people would be able to go back to where they're from. Jubilee becomes, in, this, in the story of the Bible, it becomes synonymous with the phrase, the favor of the Lord, the year of the Lord's favor. And the, the writers, especially the prophetic ones, ex- understand the idea of Jubilee as this great dream. I mean, many scholars believe that it was never practiced, that there's no kind of archaeological signs or other writings to show that the Israelites actually did this, because it would be quite, a bunch of people would be pissed if you took their land away. So there's no, maybe they did, but it doesn't seem like they did. But this idea, this dream continues throughout the scriptures to the year of the Lord's favor. And in I, I guess we'll go there now, in Isaiah is the next place that it becomes really clear. And the prophet Isaiah begins to talk about this again. And so when you hear the word the year of the Lord's favor, it's synonymous with the idea of jubilee. And so he says, 61, the spirit of the Lord is on me. 
because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. You can keep that in mind. When we keep going, we'll look at that somewhere else, but it's really important. They, they often have this in mind. It's the year of the Lord's favor versus the day of vengeance, a year versus a day. To, all, to comfort all who mourn, instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion, and instead of your disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. Okay, inheritance has to do with what we're talking about, too. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. If you even think about this story, if you don't know these stories, don't worry about it. It's not important what I'm saying. If you think about the stories of the Israelites and constantly trying to find their way into the land, Everything they're doing is trying to find their way back to this piece of land. That's the most of the story. Imagine, why is there this, this, this infatuation with getting to a place that they were made from, with wandering and waiting? When will we be back? Did I read that last part? Yeah, and everlasting joy will be yours. We're not going to stay on this. The prophet Isaiah shares this vision. And what he's saying, that the changes, this jubilee picture from Leviticus, would... would Isaiah is saying is that there will be somebody saying this, that somebody will come proclaiming jubilee again. A jubilee that is like Leviticus, but is a bit different. So when we move to, when we move to, to Luke chapter 4, it comes again. And I, we've talked about this before, but this is maybe the most important jubilee passage, if you want to know what it, what it means, is to look at how Jesus uses it. Jesus, in Luke chapter 4, is just beginning his ministry, Right? He's, been, he's been tempted by the enemy, if you know the story. He's been in the desert. He comes into town to Nazareth, the place where he grew up. There's parallels all along this. I mean, there's, there's probably 15 scriptures we could go through talking about coming home today. But we're going to talk about this and we're going to land on one more. But you can feel it as Jesus returns to his hometown. And he shares this. He goes as he had, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was was his custom. He usually went here. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. Realize, this is the first kind of public thing that Jesus does. This is his lunch, okay? This is what he wants to say. And And he turns to it, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. He picks up. It's almost like Isaiah says this prophetic thing, and he just lets it go. And he's waiting for somebody to pick it up. Someone's going to pick it up, and this is going to be for somebody. Somebody's going to own this. Somebody will say this. This is about someone. And Jesus says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So what's he saying? Why does he choose that? You know, we've talked about it before, but when you just notice again, verse 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favorite, I want to point out a couple things here that are practical for us as a church. And you might notice these two things. And there's a lot of things you might notice, and you might have questions about over time, but you might notice these two things that seem to happen, and you might wonder, why do you do that, or why do you say that? And two of them can be found here. And one is, Jesus does a very bad biblical study thing, and he doesn't misquote scripture necessarily, but he leaves out an important bit, right? I mean, we just read Isaiah 61, and I pointed out to you to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and Isaiah says, in the day of vengeance. 
of our God. And Jesus, having the scroll in front of him, stops. Why? You know, when we talk about the quiet revolution of love, it's true that in Scripture, if you want to be honest with it, that there is a sense in which there is a day of vengeance, that God will make things right. And those who don't want to give up their land, for instance, God will take it at some point. They understood, though, that God was inherently a God of mercy, which is why they understood him in terms of being a God who became a year of favor and just a day of vengeance. But Jesus himself has no desire to talk about the day of vengeance. And so often, I would say it's the same for us, although we might not be perfect at this, that we have no desire to talk about vengeance or condemnation. And I don't know God completely, so he's much more complex than we are. But it's not, it just doesn't feel like it's in my heart to talk about condemnation. Jesus himself said, I came not to condemn. So it might be true that there is some vengeance coming, but you know, I just feel like it has nothing to do with our message. It has nothing to do with what we're about here. So you might feel sometimes like, ah, we're a bit soft. You know, people got issues in their life and they need to hear them. Maybe, but I think they'll hear them from someone else. Jesus was, we'll see in a second, Jesus was overly compassionate to people who you might want to tell them about vengeance. And the only people that he hinted about vengeance at were very religious people who thought other people needed to hear about vengeance. Those are the people that Jesus saved it for. But I want you to hear that when Jesus proclaims his mission statement, his mission statement is to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and all that God take care of the vengeance. We'll talk about that in a second anyway, but... That's kind of what happens, right? And Jesus himself says, judge and you will be judged. Take the, take the plank out of your own eye before you take the, the splinter out of someone else's eye. I think the other thing is that we can often get confused that we pit God against each other like he's about love. And he's about, it's like we pit his love against his justice. Is God loving or is he just? Is he loving or is he going to make things right? Is he loving? Is he going to hold me accountable to what I've done? And I think we just totally misunderstand love. We don't understand God. I mean, God is love. God is not vengeance, okay? God is love. His nature is love. He is only love. So if anything, if the other part is true, it's just that one day love will fully consume everything that's not love. It will always be love. God will not one day set his love down and say, today is vengeance day. I've been waiting for it. Thank God it's leap year. 365 days of love, and now finally my day. It, love never stops. Whatever justice will look like at the end of time, it still comes from love. And I think it will prejudice me. I think it will be like that. I think love will consume everything that's not love. The other part is this part about the poor. And often this passage is talked about in terms of it's spiritualized. God is not talking about the physical poor. He's only talking about people who are spiritually poor. And that is incredibly wrong. We know it's wrong because if you keep reading the, if you keep reading the Bible, if you keep reading Luke, Jesus is constantly with the poor, with the, the obviously poor, the physically poor. Jesus is definitely talking about the poor. But then that's troubling because what he says is, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And he doesn't keep going. So what's up with that? Why is Jesus about the poor? 
And I think, again, what, what, we, what we need to understand, and as we continue to move in that direction, is Jesus exists. His purpose, I mean, I don't know how to say this to you other than, you must become like this. It's true, I think, that Jesus' message is only for the poor. There are poor people, people who are experiencing practical, physical, economic, daily poverty that they might not actually hear as good news. But he's still talking about that group. If you think about Jesus when he taught, he often said this, let those who have ears, let them hear. What he's saying is there are people who won't hear my message. My message is not for them. They can't hear it. They won't hear it. And those people are people then who aren't in this group. Because the, the message is only for the poor. The other thing Jesus says again and again and again is that you, means, you must become like children. If you want to inherit the God, and if you want to inherit the kingdom of God, you must become like a little child. Again and again and again. So what's he saying? If you put these things together, it's clear that you must become like a person who is poor. And there is a preferential love that he has for people who are experiencing physical poverty as well. You realize that's why that's why Jubilee and Leviticus. Why does God care? We have we've had this notion of God is so far off that why would he why would he be interested in what our world is like practically? He's inherently interested in in the way that our lives we've experienced because he's all, this what I'm talking about today is all about now. I'm not talking about after you die. We can talk about that, but I'm talk, everything is going to be about right now. So he's sharing good news for those who can come into a place realizing that they're poor. And for you, that might be realizing that although you have much physically, you have nothing. But the secret, if there's a secret as we keep going, is that coming home, so what does this mean, coming home? We'll stay on this and then we'll go to the passage that we'll finish with. To come home requires that you become a person who is poor. The call, I mean, this is a call to come home. The year of the Lord's favor is what it means, if we read Leviticus, it's a call to go back to where you come from. And the only way to receive that call, to go home, to find what that means, is to become a person that the message is for, to become like a child, to become poor. I realize that a lot of this stuff can just be like, what does that mean? That's why I'm saying if something needs to happen, that it hits you in, a, in your heart. Keep going. This, there's many stories that Jesus tells that has to do with this, but I think there's one that's really poignant, and that's the story of the, the prodigal son. The story has many names. The prodigal son, the two sons, the younger son. The story is about two sons, and it's equally about a father. And so Jesus tells a story, and just to set up the story... He's, he's, or we can, we can read it. It's in Luke. It's not on the screen, but it's in Luke chapter 15. Jesus, as he would do, was sitting around teaching. And this is the setup for the story. Now, the tax collectors and sinners, parentheses, the poor, were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. That's the setup. Okay. So you have these two groups. You've got a bunch of people sitting around who... The religious people don't like. They're listening to Jesus. They want to hear what he has to say. That's a say, side note as well. These should be our people. You realize that the, the, the point here, the whole point we're doing, is that we, 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 we follow Jesus. We become like him. We live life in his way. And if we do that, if we really become like him, then we should experience life as he experienced it. And that means that people like this should be coming to you, to me. They should want to hear. And at the same time, maybe the other people should be muttering. 
they, they welcome sinners and they, and they eat with them. And they don't tell them about vengeance. So Jesus told them this parable. So he tells a couple parables and then he gets to the lost son, this one. And we'll read it as we go. And this is about Jubilee. Okay, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. So uh, realize, Jesus is doing everything really intentionally. Okay, he's a very smart guy. Okay, he's telling them a story as a setup to what's happening right there in the moment. They're the two groups and he's going to tell them a story to make a point to them. So he says, there were two sons. It's a setup immediately. I'm just going to give it away as we go. Okay? They're both a son. Both groups are a son. There's, so he says, I'll tell you a story. There were, a man had two sons, and the younger said to his father, so don't miss it. The story for us today will be about the father in many ways. Watch the father. Watch what he does. One said to his father, the younger one, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. So what's happened is, the father, who obviously has some kind of money or inheritance for the sons at the end of his life, would, would leave the two sons with their, with their inheritance. And that would be land, it would be, it would be objects, it would be things he's acquired that he saved up. And I want you to feel for a second, it's very easy to go beyond this. What is at stake for the father? I mean, if you have a child, it's maybe even easier to think about. But imagine that the father has gone through his life with his two sons. Loving them, adoring them, raising them. And he has, he has dreamed of the day, saved up, put aside these things, that one day as he ends his life, he can leave his sons with a setup. Something to make them into the men that he hopes they'll be. Something to bring security and significance to them. Something that will make them into a father that then they can give to their son someday. I mean, this is his life. So imagine your son walks up to you. Give me my share of the estate. His father, I love this, because <clears throat> to give it away too, the father is God. Okay, that's the story Jesus is trying to tell them, that they don't know God. So he's trying to tell both groups, really. They don't know who he is. And the father just gives it to him. I think God might bless you no matter what you do. I don't think that's the point. It's not about getting God's blessing. God blesses the younger son. Even the younger son was in it for all the wrong reasons. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had. He set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. I want you to think about that. that the journey, these are two journeys. They're two trajectories. They're two lifestyles. They're two ways. We all fit into these categories, I promise, as we keep going. You might be one and then be in the other some other time in life, but you can relate. What the son does is he takes it, and often we'll do this. So if you've grown up as a Christian, or if you've been a Christian, and then one day you decided, you know, like, it's not for me, and I really need to know what else is out there, and I need to know what I'm missing and what I'm giving up. And so I'm going to be done with this whole thing. And often it's about church or something like that, but we're giving up, right? We're moving on. We're kind of running away for a time. And so if that's, if you know if that's been your experience at times, hear that here, that that's what he does. Okay? Or if you're a person that has thought that, you know what, I don't really need Christianity, I don't need faith, I don't need these things, or they're wrong, or whatever, you've had your mind made up about them. That's what the son does, is he leaves the father's house. Okay? You realize that the house is coming back, that he's grown up in the father's house, and he's decided, I'm tired of living in the house. I'm tired of being a son, in fact. And I'd like to make my own life now so you can give me what is mine. And so he goes and he lives this life just kind of having fun, living it up. And he comes to a place where he is, quote, in need. 
And here is the beginning of transformation for him. And this is the thing. This is why it's not about what we do. It's because often somebody needs to come to a place where they're in need. They need to come to a place where they fully feel and recognize the fruit of the life that they live. And that's okay. That's what's required for real transformation, even if it's uncomfortable to be around or watch. And so he comes to a place where he's in need, so then he becomes open. Okay? So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed pigs. And he longed, this was a Jewish kid. Okay? So again, I'm not, we're not going to the whole story today, but there's parallels all along here, but he's a Jewish kid who's forced to, who, to take care of pigs. Okay? It's not a good thing. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. You know, Jesus is making up the story, right? So he's trying to make a point. He longed to fill his stomach with the like, slop that the pigs were eating. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and, stay, and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven excuse me, and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. So first here, what is father like? This is what Jesus is trying to get across. So imagine he's looking at the tax collectors and the sinners, if you will, in a moment. And he's trying to explain to them, because they've been taught all their life what God is like by these other people that are muttering, right? And so what he tells them is that Father is actually like this. He saw him and was filled with compassion. He wasn't angry, right? He never seemed angry, which is odd, because I would be angry. This is what happens, is this is why it's so hard to get away from, is we relate to God based on how we experience life. I get angry when people do things to me, so I imagine that God would be miffed too. But he's not. Because God is full of compassion. God runs out, the father runs out onto the street to chase down the younger son. Realize, he has no idea why the son is back. He doesn't know that the son has come to a repentant place. Maybe the son's coming back to say, I ran out of money and I need some more money. I know you have some more. Take from my brother, I need some more money. He has no idea. But he's so full of love that he runs out, and I won't go into why that itself is a big deal, but he runs out to the son to meet him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. You realize that's what happened, right? All the other things, the story has a root. And the actions of the son and what he did, they're not really important. The important part is that the son didn't want to be a son anymore. And so he gave it up. And the father said, fine, you don't have to be a son. Go find your own life. And he ran back, and the son says this, which means he hasn't fully come back yet. This is the way we relate often. Father, I've sinned against you and against heaven, and I'll do anything. I'm not worthy to be your son. The thing that bothers me about the passage is that does he say it next? Even before this, when he's, still, when he's still with the pigs, he says, I'll be your servant, right? He just wants to be the father's servant. He wants to be like that. Often, this is the language we use, isn't it? I just want to serve God. 
The Christian language you use often is, is at root, at heart, it's, it's still not really the good news. It's still not really jubilee. I just want to serve you, God. Will you use me, God? That's fine. It's just the journey we're on. But what the Father say is the Father has none of the vocabulary. Not for the sons, right? All the vocabulary the Father has, I mean, watch it. He wants to serve. And what does the Father want him to do? The Father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So the, the life of the Father is very different than the life we experience. The life of the Father is one in which he sees humanity as, as lost and dead. He sees humanity as children, all of it. This is the surprising part, too. He doesn't go. The this, this story is about two sons, and the sons can only be people who are already Christians. No one sitting there is a Christian, right? There's no such thing. There's just a bunch of tax collectors and sinners and a bunch of righteous Pharisees. And he, he says that God sees them all like sons. This will change the way that you think about the world, about people around you, the people that you want to share the gospel with or help or something. They're, God sees them as his son already, as his daughter. And so he goes to them, and he says, and the, the, the way the father experiences life is that the son is either alive or he's dead. He's either lost or he's found. It's not about what the son does. It has nothing to do with, thank God the son is no longer doing that stuff that is very, you know, unrighteous or something. He's not concerned. The experience of the father is only that he's either dead or he's alive. It's like a real dad, obviously. (laughs) That's what he's trying to get at again and again. God is like a real father. He is a real father who loves and is filled with compassion only. And so he says this to the son that began to celebrate. You can just imagine the younger son, it's just, it's hard to get. It's really hard to get this if it's you. It doesn't feel fair. It doesn't feel right. You want to pay for your mistakes. You want to do what's required. You want to whatever. But God doesn't even have this language of service. Do you you serve your dad? (laughs) Does your dad use you for things? You might get upset if your dad uses you for things after a while. Meanwhile, and he's been quiet the whole time, right? The older son. The older son was in the field. Imagine again the pictures of the story. There is a house that the father lives in with the two sons. The one son wants out of the house. The older son, when the story picks up, is not in the house. Just kind of accept my story for a minute. Meanwhile, the older son was in a field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. And so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. And so his father went out and pleaded with him. So what happened? Both cases, there's two sons, and the father does very similar things to them. Not exactly the same, but similar things. Both sons are outside the house, and the father goes out to both sons and wants them to come in the house. He pleads with him, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. It's easy to read Bible stories and not understand the weight of what he's trying to say. I mean, imagine this house. 
Imagine what the older son's been doing while the younger son is just wasting, ruining his life. But look at what the father says. My son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. You understand what's happening? Again, I'm telling the story as a way to tell you the story of Jubilee. And to tell you the story of Jubilee as a way of telling you what the story of the Bible is actually about, again. Which we just keep doing, because that's what it's about. The story that Jesus is trying to tell is that the world works like this. This is the story of the world, if we can step away from what we experience every day. The story of the world is that the Father has children, that's us. And all the children somehow fit into these two kind of life experiences. Some people, like the younger son, have decided that they don't need the Father. And they don't want to live in the Father's house. And then what that means is, you know, you can you make it about church, it's really easy if you've experienced church at all. Because, and I have, and I've lived this story a little bit, is I'm just done with that. I don't need that. I don't want that. Or you've actually had literally bad experiences, and maybe you shouldn't be around that. I don't know. But they run away. And you run away, and you try to construct life without God. And God is super patient. And God's not bothered by it. And he has nothing but compassion. And the funny thing is, he's waiting outside the house. He's actually not even waiting for you to come in. He's waiting outside the house, and he, as, he, as he sees you approach, he's going to run out. So imagine that. If that's you, he's not waiting for you. And we talk about stuff like that, but literally, Jesus is saying that God is not waiting for you to clean life up. And he's not waiting for you to clean other people's lives up. God, as soon as, like, as, soon as he can see the sun on the road, begins running. That's what God is like. The older son, though, and this is the experience of many people that are a part of church for any length of time. Because everything, I feel this, everything we do, I think, fights against the good news. All the Christian stuff is fighting against the good news, which is really radical and really hard to sit with, but the best news we could ever imagine. And so the, the older son sounds like this, Father, I've done everything right. If he knew good theology, he'd already be wrong, right? So, I've done everything right, is his joke. I've done everything right. I've believed all the correct things, while my brother has not. And I have done all the right things, while my brother has not. And what, why would you do this? Don't you see justice? <laughs> Don't you see that my brother does not deserve this? And what about me? It's really funny what the father says to him, the response. He says, son... You're always with me. See, the thing is that the sons don't understand is that they've been living in the house all along, but they've never been living in the house. Or if I could say, they've always been living in the house, but they've never been at home. They've never realized where they are. They've never realized who they're with. And so they relate to their father like a father. Like a, it's, it's either in a religious way or in a non-religious, rebellious way. You know, it's still religious. You see? So they can only relate to him like that. That's right and wrong. They can only relate to him like that. They cannot, they have not come into an experience of being at home. What does it mean to be at home then? Being at home means being at rest. These are the parts that are hard to get, okay? Being at home is being at rest. Being at home is letting go. Being at home is having no need to prove anything. No need to, you know what? I might be like the worst Christian ever. I don't know. I don't care. Because the secret is it doesn't actually matter. <laughs> and again, you might hear over here, what is he saying? Like he does whatever he wants. 
I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is being at home is being in a place where you're at rest. Even more important, even more difficult. Being at home is living life in such a way where you no longer try to prove anything, where you no longer need anything from people. Again, you become really dependent on God and other people, but you don't need. You're not after, and I have trouble with this one too, you're not after what other people think about you. In other words, you don't live in reaction to, you know, what is Steph thinking about me right now? <laughs> have you lived in reaction like that? Like, my life is just like, I know exactly what Steph thinks, I'm an expert at it, and, and I'm always living in reaction to what she's saying, meaning, I figure out what she thinks, and then I try to adjust. You know, if she thinks this, I need to do this. If she thinks this, I need to do this. You no longer live in reaction to other people. You no longer fear your future. You no longer fear not having enough. Being at home means that the, the teachings of Jesus become really easy because you're not doing them anymore. They just happen. So, for example, Jesus says, do not worry about what you will eat or what you will drink or what you will wear. For even the, the, even the, the father takes care of the I'm misquoting it. The father takes care of the birds. Look at the birds. Look at how the Father takes care of them. Won't he also, even more so, take care of you? This is the place of, you can't do that. Okay? Again, that's not what we're, you don't do that. You become that kind of person. So being at home, coming home, let, is letting go. It's surrendering. The younger son had to surrender. This is all that's required, by the way, in, in Jesus' version of what we're talking about here. It's to surrender. It is to become like a child. So to become like a child is to let go of everything you thought you knew. To stop trying to construct your life in such a way to make it. It makes life so much more simple because then the secret is then transformation begins to happen. I, I let go of everything. This is the point. Not that I do this. Okay? I'm not saying this because I do this. I'm saying this because I want to be like this. Your life as you let go becomes an empty place where God can pour water into, and then that water wells up to eternal life, wells up to an eternal life, eternal kind of life, a life that is lasting, a life that is the life of God himself. This is eternal life. And people begin to drink this and love this, and it's no longer about what you're doing. You see, the son, and we have to go on a journey. This is the point. The son goes on a journey, and his journey is messy. And it leaves him with hurt, probably. And it leaves him with pain to have to figure out and deal with. But his answer was to come home to the Father and to let go. And it's, it's hard, because the son just wants to say, Father, I'll just be a servant. I'll just do whatever you want. And, the, and the, it's like the father can't even hear him. You know? He's like, okay. That's like a Michael Jones thing, if you know. Bring, bring the robe. Bring the ring. Kill the calf. You know, he's not even listening. And you see the son there like, And the older son, the father pleads with him. And so if that's you, just hear the father pleading with you. If you have an experience that you have worked for God and that he has not come through, this is the feeling of the older son. I have done these things. Yes, and let's just be, yes, I've messed up or whatever, but I have done more or less the right things. I have been here. I have done the right things. And you have not come through. And that person who did nothing right, you blessed them. That is the experience of the older son. It's a very poignant story. It's pretty easy to relate to. And the father, what he says, he pleads with him. He says, I've, you've always been with me. Why would he say that? Because we don't know it here. You know, We don't feel it. Because the Father seems to think that if we felt it, we wouldn't be thinking or feeling that other stuff. 
everything I have is already yours. You see that? He doesn't even want the son to ask. He doesn't need him to ask. I mean, I don't know what that means for you. Because you know? we're in real situations and you say, yeah, but you didn't come through. And the father's saying, still, come home. You see what he's doing? Is he's trying to get the sons to come home. So what Jesus is saying to the groups is he's saying, God is a father who just wants his kids to come home. And Jubilee is an announcement that you can come home. That it's possible now. Why? You think we go back to Genesis, the story was that Adam and Eve were pushed out of the garden, and then there's this really epic image of a cherubim and flaming swords, and they can't go back in, the point. <laughs> Poetic language. So what happens? The Isaiah prophecy, Jesus and Luke, Jesus telling the story right now, is that he's made it possible... I am the way, Jesus says, John 14, 6. I know we're just skipping around, but Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And I want you to hear that a little differently now. Jesus says, I am the way to the Father. You see what's happening? It, often it's not even really our experience of Christianity is that it has very little to do with this kind of thing. But this is, for Jesus, this is the whole point of what we're doing. This is why I'm talking about it today. Because we will talk about all kinds of things, but I want you to hear a little bit of heart. What's behind it all? Like, none of it matters to us. But to me, you know, and I can speak for a few others too. None of it matters. Like, this doesn't matter, and this doesn't matter. None of it really matters. As long as it serves a bit of a purpose. The point is that God just wants us to come home. And it's not just for people who aren't Christians. It's an invitation to all people, every day, wherever you find yourselves, to come home again. To let go. Because often, my experience is, I, I come into the house, and I'm like, ooh, it's very nice. It's very nice not to be anxious. It's very nice not to try. I feel very free. And then, like, last week, this happened to me, and I was like, how did I end up in the field again? I'm really tired. And I remember what the house is like. And it's an invitation again. The Father says, come home. That's not how you're supposed to live. That's, that's the only difference, I think. This is an under, overstatement, but the only difference between this right now and eternity is that I'll just be in the house all the time. There will be no leaving the house. That might sound boring, but you know what I mean. I am the way to the Father. No one comes to the Father except through me. The good news Jesus says is, the problem was always really ultimately that we could not come close to God anymore. God has always been compassionate, always been loving, always. This is why Leviticus exists. It's what can I do to make sure that you have some relationship with me, with your DNA, with your life, with your, your father. What can I do? And then Jesus is, the story as you trace it through is Jesus is Jubilee. He is the announcement. He is the final, the, the, you know, Jubilee, again, there's so much we go into, but just to end here maybe on Jesus. Leviticus 25, if you read the passage just before this, the way that the Jubilee works technically is that the announcement of Jubilee is to follow right after the sacrificing of the animal, the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was, this is why it's a very good news for the Israelites, we sacrifice the animal, and this animal's blood for this year will cleanse, this, will cleanse the sins from the prior year. We'll make it new, and this kind of thing will make it so that we can relate to God again. Nothing's between us anymore. You see, the problem is always us. God is not the problem. The problem in the scriptures, the way it understands God and life, is that there's this, there's this force in the world that is in our blood, that is in us, that is in our world, and it's separating us from God. More than God from us. That might be a stretch for some, but 
Keep reading it. More, it's, it's really separating us. Look at the story of the two sons, for example. The sons are pulled away from the father. The father's not pulled away from the sons. And so what it does is, what Jesus does in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension, is he does away with the force called sin. He, does, he opens the garden back up. And so this is the call. This is the, 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 the call of the Bible is to come home. Not necessarily to a physical garden. That's not the point. The point is to come back into the Father's house. This is why I can't just explain it in a way that just kind of makes sense. Because you can understand it, I guess. But the, the point is, do you feel it? Do you feel this draw to come home and to let go? What happens when you come home? You guys can come up, actually. Because I'm going to end right here. We won't, we won't do uh, communion today, but what does it mean to come home? To come home, when you come home, this is what happens. You know, to come home, if you just make it really easy, just keep giving up. What does it mean? You know, it is, it's your journey, so I can't tell you what to do, but your journey is, Father, make me like a child today. Make me experience life like a child. Let me trust you like a child. Help me to trust you like a child. Father, what do I have to give up that I'm holding on to that's not childlike? I promise as you start doing that, God will become real to you in a whole new way. And then what will happen is you'll begin to get one main thing back, and that's identity. There's this quote from Henry Nouwen that I like. It says it well. We are not what we do. We are not what we have. We are not what others think of us. Coming home is claiming the truth. I am the beloved child of the creator. And again, that can just feel like words, but this is it. This is what we're after, and this is why it's a lifetime. Can we come back to a place where we experience life as nothing else, really, ultimately, other than I am God's beloved son, in whom he's always been pleased? We'll talk about that next week, actually, as we begin the series, Jesus' Baptism. What does this mean? I'm just going to leave you with this. What does this mean for you? What does it mean for you to come home? What does that mean for our community to be a community that can call home, call people home? That's why it's good news. Because it's not about Jesus. You see what he does? He goes to religious people and he goes to non-religious people and he just cuts right down the middle. And he just says, just come home. Everyone's wrong. It's not about being right or wrong. Everyone's wrong. Just come home. What does it mean to come home for you? What does it mean to come home for issues in our city? What is, what is the call to come home? The call of Jubilee. What does that look like? If you read the news, if you see the news, if you're on Facebook, if you... Talk to anybody. What does it mean for the for for the for the, what's going on with Black Lives Matters? If you've seen these videos and stuff, like it's heart wrenching. What does it mean? What's Jubilee look like there? Because it's going to cut through and it's going to bring good news and it's going to call people home. And of course, there's people that are going to repent as they come. Everyone has to repent. Repent just means changing your mind about God. You know, becoming a child is repenting. <laughs> What does it mean for, you know, I I went to a talk this past week on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and I know very little about all that stuff, but just the few moments I was there and watching this indigenous man, like the, in his 60s probably, cry, and just say, I lived my whole life, and although people talk about this stuff more, basically, he was just like, why are we always treated like this? Why does no one care? Just watching cry in front of people. What does Jubilee look like for that group of people? I mean, and even the, the idea of land, of being given back land, 
that was taken from you. I doubt many people would even want to go there. The idea of Jubilee and returning what was taken. What does it mean for a family who's just like overwhelmed with the daily tasks of life and kids? What does it mean for somebody who's at work and work is overwhelming and everything about work is about trying harder and proving yourself and cutting other people down? What does Jubilee look like there? What does it look like in the university to, to work hard but somehow have my identity nowhere in this place? What does it mean to be a person who's good news in the university? What does it mean to be a child, a real child, an actual child? and live good news out? What does it mean to be marginalized and to accept the call of good news? What does it mean to live among people who are marginalized and accept this? What does it mean for the created world? I mean, this is why it's good news. It's actually holistic transformation. Jubilee is an announcement to creation itself, as we read in Romans, that someday creation itself will be renewed, which is obvious right now if you look at the world, that the environment is, is what does it say in Romans, is groaning. <laughs> So in closing, the inner journey of our transformation, our coming home, this is the secret. This is all we, at the end of the day, this is all we're saying. Coming home personally, the journey of coming home will unlock transformation for you. And it will unlock transformation outside. I mean, that, that will also awaken new dreams in you. You come home, you begin to rest, you stop trying to construct your own life, you'll have dreams come back of things that you want your life to be about, and it won't just be about you having to do them. I don't have to explain all this stuff. It'll just be, you just look at Jesus. It'll happen. You just let go, because you don't care anyway. You're carefree. You live light. You live peacefully. You don't try and love, because you live in a place that's love. You have love for people. I don't mean you always screw up, but you live in the house. You come back home. You realize that's the place you were meant to live. The inner journey of transformation is what leads to social transformation. There's lots of people that share the gospel, and there's lots of people that work for social renewal, for social justice. There's a lot of people that do this. Some things change, not many things change. The secret is the heart. Where are we doing it from? And do we do these things from a place of being at home as a natural spilling over of that? Father, thank you for... Thank you for your patience for us. And I ask for a miracle right now. Holy Spirit, as we sing a song, I mean, literally, as we sit in a chair, as we stand, as we sing a song, as we pray, would you bypass? Would you help us to let go? Would you do that work that needs to be done in us? Just hear the Father saying, come home. Just allow yourself to give up. Jesus, your message is that we would just give up and that the life that we're meant to live as a person who follows Jesus is a life of freedom. A life of grace that we don't understand and a life that creates in us over time the image of Jesus himself. So Father, would you do this in us as we just listen? Thank you for the work that you want to do in us. It's not what we do. It's not even what we do for each other. It's not what we do as a church. It's what you do in us. Now, as we leave this week, in your name I pray, Jesus. Thank you for listening to the Jubilee Montreal podcast. For more information on Jubilee Montreal, visit us online at www.jvlmontreal.org.